This summer, we are reading through psalms together. Hearing a message from a psalm each Sunday and also other psalms, we began with Psalm 117, and we just heard Sarah lead us in parts of Psalm 42. And so before we dive into Psalm 120, I want to lead us in what's traditionally called a prayer for illumination. I mean, this is a prayer that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what God has to say to us through Scripture today. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear the message you have for the church today. Open our eyes to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and open our hearts to whatever change or invitation you have for us today. Amen. So in the fall of 2016, I took a course in biblical Hebrew, and one of the requirements for this course was writing a devotional on a Hebrew word. We had a whole set of different words we could choose, But the word I chose was the Hebrew word ger, which means alien, sojourner, stranger. And I chose this word rather than a more religious word, we might think, like light or blessing or redeemer, because I identified with it. About nine months prior to this taking of this class, my family had moved to this area from Western Michigan for my husband's work. And I really felt like a gare. Moreover, throughout my whole life, because I've moved around a lot, I frequently felt like a gare. I uh, have the privilege of saying I've lived in seven states and one province. Maybe you identify with gare, too. It's translated all kinds of different ways beyond the three you see here. Resident alien, foreigner, sojourner, stranger. Scripture is full of people described as a gare. Abraham travels and stays as a foreigner. It's a verb, too. He, he gers or gares, we could say, in Egypt and Philistia. The Israelites are described as gares. Garim, that's the plural, when they are slaves in Egypt. And then later when they're exiled from Israel into Babylon. When you are a gare, you are a long way from home. And the verb form of this word shows up in our text today. Psalm 120 is the first of a collection of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. It has the heading under the number for 15 of them, starting at 120. And we understand that these were the songs that God's exiled people sang as they made their way toward Jerusalem to worship God. These are pilgrimage songs. These are processional songs that anticipate experiencing the presence of God in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. These are songs you sing with others on your way to worship. Now, not every one of these 15 psalms talks about Zion itself. They all point to it. Zion is understood as the center of the kingship authority of God. And one of the underlying themes of these 15 psalms emphasize that God will be encountered, that peace will be present, and that Zion is the place from which God's blessings emanate. 
Zion was understood to be the place where heaven and earth overlap and where you can really experience the holiness of God, the holy presence of God. Zion is truly home. So imagine the song being sung while traveling, even as you walk toward Jerusalem, toward Mount Zion, you're preparing your heart to worship. You're practicing worship, focusing yourselves to be in the eminent presence of God on Mount Zion. And this song, the first psalm in the Psalms of Ascent, is the first step. So we begin with verse 1. You can tell that the singers are a long way from, are a long way from home, and they're in distress. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, that he may answer me. What is this distress, you wonder? Why are they upset? Why are they in distress? Well, verse 2 tells us why. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Ah, the trouble is the liars, right? The psalmist is surrounded by liars. In, In Hebrew, it literally says, lips of untruth and a tongue of deceit. Now, we don't know if the psalmist is being lied about or being lied to or both, But we know there is a lot of lies, and the psalmist is requesting that God save him or her from these lies and from those who lie. So here we see the psalm. Getting up, ready to go to pilgrimage, to move toward God and away from those who lie. But then, in verses 3 and 4, there starts to be a little imagining of what this deliverance, what this salvation might look like. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? The psalm now is addressing the lying tongues. And the psalmist answers himself, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. This is the punishment the liars should receive. These weapons, these sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree, we don't know what that In our cultural context, that might not be something that resonates with us, but let me tell you, these are not children's weapons in the toy section at Walmart. These arrows, these are one of the highest technology for revenge seen in these days. If this psalm were written today, it might say, what's going to happen to the deceivers? The tanks are coming. The leopard 2A7. I see. There it is. This is a top-rated tank in the world right now, and that is knowledge I had to look up. So it sounds like the singers' lives are pretty bad. They are surrounded by lies. They're surrounded by deep falsehood, by liars, and it is painful to the singer. It's painful to their faith community. They're being lied about, and so they're taking it to God, asking God to get out the big guns, ready to watch those liars be punished. And at this moment, maybe we pause. Maybe there's a rest in the music. We're waiting. We're waiting to see what is going to happen next. The psalmist has already said that God answers me. God, are you going to answer? Are you going to get out the big guns? Are you going to get out those arrows, drive up in that tank? And maybe the singers stop to ponder while the music plays on. But God does not answer right now. Do you notice that? He doesn't shoot arrows at the lying lips and deceitful tongues. He doesn't come in the tank. 
So instead, the psalm turns and it changes topic. Verse 5, woe is me that I am an alien in Meshech, that I must live among the tents of Kedar. And here's our word of the day, ger, the verb form. Woe is me. That I, alien, the verb, in Meshech, that I must live among the tents of Kedar. Maybe when this was read, you kind of breezed over that part because these proper nouns aren't used very much in the biblical narrative and we're not very familiar with them. So we're like, woe is me, blah, blah, blah. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. But these locations are very important. First, they are both outside Israel. Meshech is on the northern end. Meshech is a descendant of Noah's son, Japheth, a tribe. And throughout scripture, Meshech is described as being violent. In Ezekiel 32:26, Meshech is described as spreading terror in the land of the living. And then Kedar was the son of Ishmael, the eldest son of Abraham. And geographically, Kedar is south in what is now Saudi Arabia. Now, Kedar was really, really known for its luxurious tents. which are compared to Solomon's in Song of Songs, and its warriors. In other words, Kedar is outside God's kingdom, but man, is it nice. It's a fancy place. The tents are so amazing, and when you walk by them, you have to tell your kids, hey kids, remember, most people in the world don't live in tents like this. Most people don't have a personal pool. Most people don't have a flush toilet. That is really true. But despite the beauty of the tents of Kedar, the psalmist is making a realization. Despite his sense of being a resident alien, a gur, despite his lament about the lies he's surrounded by, he is becoming like the community in which he lives. Do you see that? Despite the fact that in verse 7, it literally says in Hebrew, I, peace, right? I am for peace. In Hebrew, it says, I, peace. He's pointing at himself. How can this be? He has just asked God to sick a tank on his enemies. And I think he's caught in this tension. I'm surrounded by lying lips, deceitful tongues. God, get them, get them with your big tank. And then he realizes his conundrum. I'm becoming like those who surround me. Get me out of here. I am a long way from home. I am a girl. No wonder he says, woe is me. Woe is me. I've lived too long around this luxurious and violent lifestyle. Woe is me. I'm becoming like those around me. Get me out of here and into the presence of God. And so the psalmist's distress is not only external, the liars that surround him, it's internal. It's the tension he realizes between what it means to be a worshiper of God going up to the temple and one who has lived too long in Meshech and Kedar. He has been formed by Meshech and Kedar. He's luxuriated in a fancy tent. He's for peace, yes, more than his neighbors. But there's a strange inner conflict in this psalm that demonstrates his problem. So we return to verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. You know, we're all exiled. All of us. I'm not the only girl here. Whether you've lived in 21 places in your life or one place, 
Exile, the experience of being a Gur, is an experience God's people have had for a long time, I'd say since our faith began. And even after God's people returned from exile to the promised land, things were not the same for them because the land was still under the leadership of others. And something was off. Something was off because exile is not just geographic. Exile can be defined as a feeling of alienation and a longing for something more that all humanity experiences. And in the Bible, exile is the human condition. And it doesn't matter where or when you live, we all long for a better home. And often, we try to find this home by ourselves. We frequently go about it in two very distinct ways. The first is that we fight like Meshach. We get angry and get out the forged arrowheads or the tank, and we try to force where we live to become our home. We try to make it right ourselves, to make it peaceful through our own angry reactions. And we have seen this throughout the history of humanity from the zealots at the time of Christ, who were trying to overthrow the Roman rule, to the French Revolution, to the religious wars in Northern Ireland. We see it today in mass protests in Puerto Rico, the Gilets Jaunes in France. We see it today as the violence and anger that people feel within comes out and spills out into the kind of mass shootings we realized yesterday, we saw yesterday. And if it doesn't come out as that, it comes out as violent verbal rhetoric. People want to reach the sense of home. They yearn for it so strongly, this experience of inner peace even, or inner justice, and so they fight for it. When I was thinking of Meshach this week, I kept on thinking of the angry faces of politicians and pundits. I thought about showing one. But I didn't want you to get angry, so I didn't show any. But even when we don't use tanks and arrows, we use language to revolt. The way language is used violently and even passive aggressively online today is an example of how people fight to make it right. Language is a weapon, and the tools of rhetoric which can be used for God's glory are turned in on themselves and cause harm to divide humanity and dishonor people and God. This is one way we try to find home through angry resistance. I know that many of us today are living in a constant state of anger, and it's becoming normal to many of us. We actually organize and order our lives around anger, and the peace of Christ that passes all understanding is far away. But this angry resistance is not the way for God's people. It is not the way out of exile. We are called to be people of peace. But there's another way people try to reach the sense of home. It's an extreme alternative. And this is not angry resistance, it is adaptation. It seems a lot nicer. We listen to the narrative of Kedar and we want to stay in these beautiful tents. Because we fit in here, it's luxurious. And we forget what it's like to long for the presence of God because we've become so comfortable. We forget we're on a pilgrimage toward God, and instead we settle down in our fancy tents and pools and indoor plumbing, and this is an enjoyable existence, but it too is a false home. 
And we recognize that this is a false home deep down, even in peaceable communities, because the longing of our hearts does not go away. Now, even though this option does seem a lot nicer, it has equal spiritual consequence. Because in this adapted life, this life is the life in which all our highest hopes are already realized. Contemporary philosophers have recognized this and are naming this problem. Philosopher James K.A. Smith talks about this strange presence of an absence. Charles Taylor describes it as the terrible flatness of the everyday. Have you recognized this in your life? This experience has been identified particularly with commercial, industrial, and consumer society, a society that asks deep questions such as, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This adaptation leads to the horrible realization of millennials and of young Gen Xers like myself of what you have to look forward to in life. Getting up every morning for the next 40 or so years, commuting, working at the desk, and then coming home. Exile. It's an experience of the repeated accelerating cycle of desire and fulfillment that we adapt to in a consumer culture. It's the cardboard quality of bright supermarkets or neat row housings in a clean suburb. And we feel the pressure to adapt. And I would say not just adapt in what we consume, but adapt in how we think. Because we're told over and over again that our tents are never big enough, never luxurious enough, and will never look good enough to live in them. And this pressure is demonstratively visible in our high rates of addiction, anxiety, depression, and loneliness in the most affluent communities in the United States. And every time the echo of our longing heart gets a little louder, we fill it with busyness or, or screen time or a remodeling job. And this is where adaption, adaptation leads us. It may be nicer on the surface, but it too is rotten at the core. So what do we do? Oh, for me, that I've resided with Meshech, dwelt beside the tents of Kedar. And so what we do is we return to verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. This psalm of ascent is the one that is the most visibly distant from God of all 15 of these psalms. But here we are, at the start of the journey, the furthest away from Zion that we can be, but we're on the road toward God in a journey that begins with a promise. I call on the Lord in my distress that he may answer me. The verb form here, answers, is not a verb form we really have in English. It happens, but it doesn't have continuing. It, the verb form answers happens in the present with continuing implication. So sometimes it's translated answered, past tense, sometimes present tense, answers, and then sometimes future tense, he will answer. So this isn't just a one-time deal. God doesn't just answer in the past. He's answering and he will answer. And because God has answered, we have hope that he will answer again. 
That's why we're praying this psalm. And God does answer. Through the witness of the prophets like Daniel and the life of Jesus, we see a way to live that is neither in the angry violence of Meshach or the luxurious adaptation of Kedar. Jesus shows us the way through the exile of sin and death and the way to live in this other exile we sense while awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus came proclaiming a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is here, he said. That's the kingdom we long for. And so, because Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, we continue to live in exile, all of us, Ger. Not because we're exiled from the presence of God, we're not, but because we're citizens of a different kingdom living in a new kind of exile, living as a new kind of stranger. Followers of Jesus are to be resident aliens in Hinsdale or Westmont or LaGrange or the Midwest or the United States or North America or wherever you live on earth because we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we continue to be exiles, sojourners, as we wait for Jesus to return to transform this world into our new and permanent home. Then we will be permanent residents, no longer strangers. This is the Christian hope, my friends. Jesus' friend and his disciple Peter wrote about what it means to live in exile now in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So we're still exiles, but we are not exiled from the presence of God. We are called to be a royal priesthood, all of us, not just the pastors, in which we demonstrate and live into the presence of God with us as a witness to others. Because of Jesus, we still have access, we have access to the Father, no matter who we are or where we are. And when Peter calls us foreigners and exiles, he's talking about how, in this world, we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're living among Meshach and Kedar, but we're called to live in a way that constantly points to who God is and who God has created and called us to be. To live in a way that constantly, constantly points to the kingship of Jesus. And until the consummation of all things, we will continue to live together as Gerim, plural for Ger. But through the witness of the Holy Spirit, the church, and scripture, God empowers us to live well in exile, to model our lives not after the violence of Meshach and the luxury of Kedar, but after Jesus. So what do we do in response? As I have prayed and meditated on this passage this week. I sense several different ways the Holy Spirit might be inviting us as a group and as individuals to respond to this psalm today. So first, reject the violent anger of Meshech. Even if you do not own a weapon in your home, 
We are surrounded by examples of violent anger. And I think one of the primary ways that anger is cultivated today in our society is through social media and news outlets. So I invite you to ponder what cultivates anger in your spirit, to name it Meshech, and to leave it. This might be a partial media fast on a regular basis, or it might say, I gotta leave this. This is not making me more like Jesus. I read a report this week uh, uh, that at this point, Americans actually have more trust in the institution of the church than the tech giants, including social media tech giants. So please trust me as a minister of the church. Do this. Take regular media fast. Permanently remove yourself from social media platforms or news tweets if you are caused, or news shows, if, if anger rises up in you. Turn off the news alerts on your phones. You do not need to always know what politicians tweet. Distancing yourself from the violent rhetoric of our society will lead you away from a spirit of anxiety and fear and anger and toward the peace of Christ. Secondly, some of you, royal priests, may be being invited to refuse to adapt to the tense of Kedar. Remember that we are still on a journey together toward God, and this is what matters the most. Learn about the freedom of simplicity and generosity. There is a freedom in simplicity. Richard Foster has a great book about this. He's written about it in The Freedom of Simplicity. Perhaps the spirit is piquing your curiosity and you think, God might be having that book for me to read today. Not today. Order it today and read it in the next few weeks. But I encourage you to read this book if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And this is especially an important practice for us because of where we're located. And then finally, this is not an individual journey. This song, these Psalms of Ascent, they're not sung by individuals. They're sung by groups of people from separate geographic locations but who have a common goal. And all of us who are born into the individualistic cultural waters of our society, we have to remember that God calls us together to be a people together. To make this journey toward God requires that we're in this together. And we all need the body of Christ, the church, to make this journey. So get involved in the church community if you're not involved very much already. Join a Bible study. We'll be talking about rooted groups in a few weeks. Fellowship with other exiles. Worship each Sunday together. Stay on this path together as we move toward the presence of God. And finally, I just added this part yesterday, but I know many of you well, and I know some of you are very spiritually mature and you live a simple life and you don't use violent language and you're not stirred by certain media and you're practicing community together with the church. Psalm 120 is also an invitation for us to lament Meshach and Kedar, to lament the violence that we see and witness in our world, in our nation, in our community every day. Almost 30 people were killed yesterday in mass shootings. This violence doesn't suddenly come upon a person. We live in Meshach, a nation that is violent. And so maybe today your call is to lament 
follow the biblical model, lament the violence. And so before we prepare for the table, I've invited Pastor Lars and Katie to sing a version of Psalm 120 with the words by Isaac Watts. And I invite you to listen, see what the Spirit might be inviting you to relinquish and lament together and to pray, pray for the coming of Jesus. Amen.